the status quo can't remain. This week, we said we're going to highlight some not ours voices, and we've got Sar Safa on the show to start doing just that. Sar is an Edmonton-based entrepreneur and community builder who founded and organizes the Sea Tribe Festival. We'll talk to him and get his thoughts on, well, a lot of stuff, actually. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 89, and we've got a long episode ahead of us, so we're not going to waste any time. On to the jokes. A health-conscious Alberta government is taking cues from jurisdictions that have implemented a sugar or junk food tax and taking the implementation one step further. Now, Albertans that risk consuming a Big Mac or Tim Hortons coffee will receive four complimentary disposable masks to help prevent the ingestion of the gruel. The masks are only available for people in cars, meaning people walking and cycling can have their McFlurry or Timbits as a reward. Said Health Minister Tyler Shandro, quote, We looked at a case study examining the outcome of driving around the province in Alberta in a blue pickup truck, celebrating corporations, and frankly, the results are pretty negative. Let's hope we can correct course here. Vexed with the overgrown state of city-owned green spaces, some residents have taken it upon themselves to begin mowing. This has reminded many of the summer of 2017 when the city opted to reduce its pesticide use to catastrophic consequences. There were some dandelions. Said a concerned resident with traumatic flashbacks to 2017, quote, We simply can't stand for this. Tall grass is dangerous. There could be something in the grass that you can't see, and my kids play there, end quote. We tried to catch up with the kids playing, but they couldn't stop for comment as they felt like they were a year earlier in 2016 and shouted, quote, there's wild Pokemon in the tall grass. The Alberta government has signed a memorandum of understanding with the Canada Infrastructure Bank to evaluate the feasibility of a passenger rail line between Calgary and Banff. The memorandum, which had its media release on Tuesday, caused sufficient dopamine release in all those involved that they were ready to call it there. Said the chair of the committee, quote, after this, I'm going to head home and make a mid-year resolution to go to the gym. Boy, am I ready to commit, end quote. At press time, ministerial staff could be seen using an early draft of recall legislation announced last November and never acted upon as napkins for their takeout. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network powered by ATB. And this episode is brought to you by Straight from the CPA's Mouth, a new podcast series created by the CPA Education Foundation and funded by the Heshi CPA Knowledge Center. Alberta's Chartered Professional Accountants, or CPAs, you should know that acronym, uh, initialism, by now. They're experts on a wide range of topics and issues of interest to Albertans. Straight from the CPA's mouth has discussions on topics important to you, from leadership skills and achieving career potentials to financial literacy and how to make your tax refund bigger. You'll find Straight from the CPA's mouth on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or on the CPA Education Foundation's website at cpaalberta.ca slash foundation. That's cpaalberta.ca slash foundation. So... This week, I said we had a big episode. Uh, That is because through the magic of editing, we've already had the conversation and we're recording this afterwards. So we'll jump into our interview with Sar Safa. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Uh, I think a very tiny action that we can take as two white guys hosting a podcast is to (laughs) offer up our platform such as it is to amplify other black voices, black voices such as yours. And so that's what we're doing today. And we're really glad that you're willing to come on and talk to us about this. It's a conversation that has been all around us lately, and uh, we're excited to hear your your thoughts and help us through it. So Mac, uh, as is 
typical when you have a guest on a podcast, you have to do the uncomfortable reading of their very long list of accolades and they can sit there uncomfortably while you uh, sort of extol their virtues. So why don't we get on with that? Yeah, let me do a little bit of that. So SAR is a model and you've got incredible <laughs> style, SAR. Uh, you were written about in Avenue Edmonton and I think you were a brand ambassador for some fashion companies. I've always been so jealous of your style because I have not. So uh, that's one thing. You're an entrepreneur uh, and that, a real entrepreneur because you had previously started uh, a company called Capsule. And I saw in an online bio of yours that it, quote, failed miserably. And uh, you can't be a real entrepreneur if you haven't failed. So there's that. Uh, Sar is, of course, the uh, founder of the Sea Tribe Festival, which is uh, sort of a inspired by South by Southwest event here in Edmonton that celebrates Diversity brings together different industries to, to explore innovation and creativity. Uh, SAR is also the Vice President of Canadian Operations at Autonomic IQ, which, congratulations, just won one of the pitch competitions at Inventures Unbound. And of course, you're Black. And I want to highlight that because <laughs> if you read all of those things, a pretty impressive resume you've got, lots of accolades, I'm willing to bet that at least some listeners would picture a white person in their head, right? And and that's one of the kind of systemic issues that's been at the root of everything that's gone on in the last couple of weeks. Well, I mean, thanks for doing the research and uh, pointing out that I'm a model. I think that was that one caught me a little <laughs> bit off guard. And and yeah, I mean, I, I've been fortunate to, I guess, get into, you know, a few things and at least try a whole bunch of things, uh, which, you know, I, I've learned some lessons for from and you know, had the opportunity to, uh, you know, maybe excel in certain areas. But yeah, you know, at the end of the day, it's still a, it's still a marathon. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate with the current opportunities that I do have and uh, the chance to, you know, maybe hear some of my experiences and, and kind of journey along the way. So yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, you're an Edmontonian that wants to build things, wants to do things. And uh, those are the those are the folks that I find inspiring. Thank you. Yes, likewise. So let's first get into how you got to where you are today. Um, Mac didn't mention an education. Are you one of those self-made dropped out of Harvard uh, Bill Gates types? <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not that cool. You know, sorry, Uwe, for, I guess, starting my intro like that for my education. But uh, I was fortunate to attend uh, the University of Alberta. I did my Bachelor of Commerce there uh, around the same time. Well, during the same time, I was competing with the collegiate basketball team there for the University of Alberta Golden Bears, uh, where I played uh, five years uh, with the team. You know, within my last year of university was when I you know, really decided to take the plunge into entrepreneurship. I, I had a pretty significant uh, hip injury in my fourth year, and, you know, it kind of really helped me crystallize that, you know, if, even if I recovered from this and, you know, I, I go to play seven, 10 years of a professional career, which is, you know, upon average, looking at the numbers and stuff, you know, I, I would have to come back to wherever my home base was and start from scratch and then and, and kind of pick up a career and stuff. So, and just kind of looking at some of my, my peers that had the opportunity to go play overseas in places like Italy and Spain and, uh, you know, different, different places where the caliber of basketball was really, really high, you know, not NBA level, but, uh, you know, really, really high looking at those uh, Euro European pro leagues, you know, it was, it was neat to see them and their experiences that they garnered when they went overseas. But yeah, it's kind of along with my hypothesis of when they, when they came back and just kind of seeing them, 
you know, having to take maybe entry level jobs or, you know, having to go back to school to upgrade and stuff. So, you know, it really didn't uh, align with some of the goals that I wanted to achieve down the road. So I, I had to make the, the hard decision as to, uh, you know, what I wanted to do from there. And uh, fortunately, uh, you know, entrepreneurship kind of seemed like something for me. I, I've never been the type of person to really hold a job for a very long time uh, for, for various reasons. And, uh, and I've always kind of had the itch of wanting to, as Max said, build something that would actually be of meaning to, to, to people and, 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 you know, create value for the world that way. So yeah, entrepreneurship was, was the route that I took right after university and stuff. So like Max said, uh, with entrepreneurship, failure is an inevitability and entrepreneurs sort of expect a base level of tumult going on. And I think it's fair to say that right now, most of the world is in a bit of a tumult. In Edmonton, we saw as many as 15,000 people estimated show up at the legislature to protest racism and support the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've seen 10,000 people sign a petition calling for councils to defund the police. And we've even seen resignations in the Downtown Business Association after the executive director made some uh, not so well-advised tweets. And of course, all of our social media feeds are full of people talking about racism. But I'd like to get your take on this situation from the perspective of an Edmontonian entrepreneur of color and how you're grappling with the tumult. I think there's a lot to unpack there, especially with how fast things are moving around us and every day there's something new that we're 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 learning and i mean i I will just go on the record of saying that i did work close in close capacity with uh, the executive from the dba um on 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 a board that we we worked together and he was a very very nice individual right like i think you know he's the kind of guy that would look you in the eye and and shake your hand and you know ask how you're doing and was very productive and good at what he what he did so you know this topic is is a lot to unpack for me given that i think i fall within a scope of being somebody who you know is from the underprivileged kind of group but i still have experienced more privilege than maybe the the worst of the worst that's kind of part of that bucket and stuff right and it's not to separate separate me by any means or saying that i'm i'm better than than uh than some of my peers or whatnot i think within the subgroup i'm coming from a place of privilege maybe having some of the opinions that i that i do have given that you know a lot of my life i've been shielded from a lot of very overt you know racial behaviors whether being very young and my sister protecting me in, in different forms. And, you know, I would never be the guy who would get in a scrappy fight on on the playground because my sister would be there and, and she would have my back. Or, you know, as I, go, as I grew older and I got into things like, you know, playing basketball or, you know, going to university, I, I was able to create very strong alignment and allyships with, uh, you know, Caucasian, Caucasian peers. And, and, and even, you know, some of my, my best friends who, who are Caucasian are also who are people of color. So I think it's a challenge for me to unpack this. And, and I'll try uh, because I also think it's an opportunity to hopefully bridge the gap between things that I think that we can do to move forward and hopefully come out on this, you know, as, as, as one race. And, I mean, kind of tailoring back to the the whole tweets with uh, the DBA executive, you know, I, I think it's, it's so easy nowadays with how quick we are to, 
take a thought in our minds, transmute it into a Twitter feed or a Twitter comment or uh, an Instagram post or whatever, and that be the only thing that people judge us by. Um, and it's, you know, I, I don't know that I, I kind of agree with the cancel culture that we 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 live we 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 are kind of undergoing right now, where uh, you know even very subtle comments that are made or or things that are done, yeah, they're they're aggressive, right? Yeah, you know, there's a form of people going through some kind of trauma when things like that are said or they they run into to comments like that. It's unearthing a lot of unhealed wounds that have been passed on generation to generation. So I, I completely understand where that's coming from. But I think why we are experiencing one of the biggest civil rights movements in history right now is because of the fact that we've collectively been able to to latch on and, and create partnerships with with other allies, right? I mean, we're seeing that there are a lot of indigenous people joining the conversation, a lot of, you know, Caucasian people, a lot of, uh, you know, Asians and other various people of color that are basically coming out and saying, yes, Black lives do matter. And I think that's why we're able to see such an acceleration in, you know, policy changes and, you know, governments being really attuned and active with this and brands and personalities and influencers coming out and say, yes, this is something that we believe in because the the viral factor that we're able to achieve with that is just unprecedented. Things like the internet and social media and mobile phones have been part of our lives only for a short period of time. So we've never really experienced something like this. And I think the last thing that we want to do is, I have to be careful how I word this, but um, you know, I think the last thing that we want to do is not have the end goal of converting somebody into an ally if the opportunity is there. Right, because that is how we're seeing this accelerated change, and that's how we're we're getting, you know, through to Congress or or through to uh, you know government entities, and, and we're we're having this conversation on the forefront and stuff, right? Um, so you know, with that, I think we've all been thrusted into some form of leadership within our spheres spheres of influence here, right? Where you know people that may have not have had a voice before now can be equipped with information and take that back to their spheres of influence, whether that be at the dining table, whether that be, uh, you know, within their their friends WhatsApp group, or whether that be, uh, you know, various mediums of communication and stuff. And, you know, the more people that we can kind of equip with with messaging and, and what to say and what to do when they are, are experiencing rash, you know, racial uh, behavior or, or commentary, you know, I think that's powerful. Because I think what we can agree to is that this is only going to have the the magnitude of change if we're able to get to the crooks and crannies and the corners of the globe and more people are able to step up and say hey you know what john that comment that you made is not appropriate and this is why this is why you know it uh, it uproots a lot of uh, unhealed wounds for people and we we can't say that anymore right and what that does is that that person is much more influential to that to his or her spheres of sphere of influence than Sar Choi or Macus. And yeah. you know, if we think of that, that's really, really powerful. So, you know, the last thing that we want to do is, you know, shame people to act like that versus inspire them and empower them to to, you know, um, find within them the the courage to to come out and say things like that. So uh, that's a little bit of kind of at a high level where <laughs> where I stand and I know I, I rambled on for a while, but Yeah, I mean just listening to you talk about that, it strikes me that you seem like the kind of person who 
sees the good in people and wants to see the good in people and wants totally. to give people the benefit of the doubt rather than just assume or jump to they're a horrible person and you know like the yeah. you know the cancel culture that you referenced i wonder if some of that is because you know you're you're in tech and you have to be sort of optimistic to be in, in tech right <laughs> you know i i i think yes that's definitely I mean, one of the reasons why I maybe take an optimistic viewpoint here, or I guess a position here. What's also important to contextualize is that there is truth or pain, kind of however we want to categorize that in what people are saying. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the best example that I can provide is, you know, that one of the other days I was just out for a walk with my, my friend and, you know, she has some pretty contrarian views most loving and nicest person ever. But, you know, she, she said something to me and she was like, you know what, sorry, I think Trump is the best thing that happened to America. And I, I, I it, it, that comment kind of took me aback a little bit, yeah. right? Being like, I mean, so you kind of understand what's happening right now, right? I mean, my, my, I, I didn't want to like overreact to it, but I, I just questioned her and I said, you know, do you realize what has kind of transpired over the last, you know, uh, approximately four years since uh, number 45 got into office? You know, she she couldn't really expand on, on the points that she was trying to make, at least to the way that I eventually kind of interpreted it as. But I, I sat with that comment uh, after we finished our, our, our walk. And, you know, I, I was just at home and I was just, you know, kind of thinking like, why? You know, why, why would she say this? Why, why is this the case? One of the things that I kind of latched onto, and I mean, this could be like a coping method. This could be just because, you know, this is how I deal with scenarios. And, you know, kind of like you said, Mac, looking for ways to kind of, you know, problem solve or, or get to, you know, some kind of place where we can move forward with things versus, uh, you know, looking backwards and, and, and thinking negatively about scenarios. The realization that I came to was that I don't think that this movement would be as powerful as it is right now if there wasn't the most powerful person in the world trying to stroke divisiveness amongst a group of people that have realized that, you know, we have to tackle this together. You know, I think more importantly, I don't think America had really realized how deep-rooted and systemic their racial issues were until somebody like Trump got to office and he had a chance to, well, I mean, America as a whole had a chance to collectively look at the situation and be like, oh, damn, like, this is real. This person got elected because of a strong group of people that live in our country that believe in his values or his rhetoric or the story that he tells or the stories that he doesn't tell. Trump has not come out yet to even state you know, after, you know, the, the, the passing of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and uh, Ahmaud Arbery, he has not come out to state that racism is an issue in the United States, right? What's the first thing that you do when you're trying to solve a problem? You better identify it and clarify it so that you understand exactly what the problem is that you're trying to solve, right? You, you can't address a problem if you don't even know what it is. You know, even to, I guess, build up on that, you know, uh, President number 44, Barack Obama, that was kind of posed as a almost like a, a, a small victory for the United States being like, hey, you know, we, we got a black president. Racism doesn't exist here. You know, let's move on from this. 
and you know, I can't say this this is for sure, but I, I don't think we would be at a place right now if Barack Obama was was still in office because you know this experience has really unearthed for people how deep seated this is. So I mean, kind of jumping back to the the comment that my friend made, you know, there there's some truth in that, right? Whether I like to agree with it or not, or whether I'm able to kind of come to that conclusion, you know, I think the change that is being progressively made right now and how fast it's accelerating, as I kind of mentioned, you know, is is primarily, you know, being driven by the fact that the, the most powerful person in, in the world is trying to cause this divisiveness. And, you know, people are waking up and they're being like, okay, this is this is not right. You know, we got to do something about this. And that large group of people that you talked about that supported him feel empowered in some ways because mm-hmm. they see his words and his actions and really no punishment or condemnation for them, except perhaps along party lines. And it sort of gives them like, this is okay, a tacit approval, almost. Exactly. And, you know, this is something that, you know, people of color have been complaining about for for the longest time, right? I think Will Smith said it best, racism isn't getting worse, it's only getting filmed, right? And, you know, it's it's given a platform now where people can expose exactly what these underprivileged and, and, and affected groups are have been experiencing. And, you know, people, you know, that maybe haven't been through traumatic experiences like that are internalizing this now and really understanding that, okay, this is this is real. Like what we've been told for the last, you know, decades or centuries is is still existing today. And yes, to your point, Mac, uh, you know, there are people on the other side who are now empowered to come out and have a voice against this movement. The, the, the best type of racism that I've experienced is the one that's very overt, right? Because I know that this is a person that I should avoid or this is a situation that I should avoid. You know, the worst ones are the ones that are very stealthy and, and microaggressive that I may not be able to detect right away because you don't even know that you're at a disadvantage, right? right? So yeah, I think there's, there's so much to kind of talk about there, but uh, that, that's kind of where, um, I don't know if I even answered your question. But. <laughs> but it's important stuff that you've said. I think that's a really interesting point to make. And it's hard, even in Edmonton, to talk about what's happening around the world right now without talking about Trump to some extent, right? I mean, it totally. doesn't surprise me that, uh, that the conversation would go there because it is so central to, as you say, to everything that's going on right now. Yeah, no, 100%. And, and, and yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, let's try to come back to Edmonton a little bit. Uh, sure. <laughs> you, you're, you're in the tech sector here in Edmonton, and you publicly on Instagram the other day kind of called out the tech community and said, uh, silence is really loud right now. And I've seen Sam Pilar from Jobber and Amir yeah. Chef from Deal Closer and maybe one or two other people post something. Uh, about the movement on social media, but it has been pretty quiet. So thank you for calling that out. I'm curious to know if you've had any response. Have you seen any discussion start as a result? I personally haven't. I don't know if it's because I'm not in the right rooms or if I'm not in the right chats or, or whatnot, but I personally haven't come across anything. I mean, one of the reasons why, why C-Tribe was very important for, for us to start and, and push forward with, even with, you know, the, the slow progress that we've, we've been able to make per se, 
but yeah, it, it's 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 a it's a challenge that I've I've experienced for for a while now. You know, having you know been living in Edmonton for for most of my life and and whatnot. And yeah, it's really unfortunate that you know there aren't more senior leaders coming out and, and having a say towards this and and whatnot. You know, I don't know if it's not the right medium or not the right channel or you know whatever the case is. But yeah, it, it's it's pretty apparent that you know no one is really coming out and t- to take a stance on. On, on where they stand and whatnot. So you bring up an interesting point and especially relevant to me this morning, um, my company, a local Edmonton tech company, go figure, we had an all hands call and basically it was our founder, mostly prompted by uh, Dana DiTomaso at Kickpoint. Uh, they released a uh, newsletter saying, here are some of the concrete actions we're going to take to help enfranchise marginalized members of our community. We, in the past, we had discussed some of these issues, but we had decided not to make any posts on social media because Mm -hmm. we didn't want to be sort of like self-congratulating white people. Oh, look at us doing Mm -hmm. the bare minimum. Mm -hmm. But it was in that call this morning where we had a salient moment that if Kickpoint hadn't released in their newsletter all the things that they were doing, then we might not have thought, hey, you know what? We can actually be doing more. So I kind of wanted to get your thought on that, I'm a white guy. Uh, most of my company, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of diversity. We'd love to change that. But as it stands, we don't have a lot of those marginalized voices or black voices. So we chose not to speak up. Mm. Do you think that's a problem? Do you have any advice to companies who may want to navigate the situation better? Yeah, that's that's a very contentious point, I think, because there really is no right answer, right? I mean, no matter which route that you as an individual or as an organization go, there is going to be challenge and criticism across the board, right? I mean, we're, we're seeing it with the biggest companies that are, you know, putting their money where their mouth is or posting on social media saying the, the work that they're, they're going to be doing. Because it's such a sensitive issue for a lot of people, it almost feels like no matter which way that you go, it's there's there's going to be some kind of pushback and some kind of contention, right? So I think just re- what's really important, Troy, is that as an organization, you're really looking deep and, you know, being willing to objectively say, okay, you know what, if we dismantle our, co- or sorry, not dismantle, if we, you know, kind of expose our company here and really look at why we don't have, you know, representation across all levels and, if we, we, we build back up with understanding that these are the things that we should change from, from this day going on forward, then I think that's more authentic to the organization if, they're really, if they really care about this, right? Because, I mean, we, we, just like the startup world, this is going to be a fad that lasts a few months and then people are going to be on to something else. Unfortunately, the, there's a fallacy that people have that, Oh yeah, the you know the whole world is behind this, so it's it's the the movement is going to last for a very long time. No, that's not that's not the case. I mean, Coney twenty twelve that dominated the entire world, and yet have we heard anything in twenty thirteen on? Yeah, right, exactly. So you know the 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 goal here, and I mean it, it goes back to my one of my first points is you know the goal here is to build some kind of sustainable. Uh, action that that can be continued on after the social media hype has died and after the the colossal of people start hashtagging about this 
And that's one of my, my worries, not because I don't think that we won't make progress without that type of energy. I, I think that we'll, we'll be in a better place if people are really looking intrinsically you know, within themselves and within their organization to be like, okay, we want better representation. And, you know, this is what we're going to put in our company policies moving forward. And this is how we're going to, you know, look for uh, new team members, whether it be at the board level or whether it be for employees and stuff. And we're, we're, we're going to enact this. We're going to enact this within the fabric of our organization. And whether you post that on social media or not, I, th- I think to me, I don't, I don't really care, to be honest. Uh, because, like I said, you're you're, you're going to get pushback with it. I mean, regardless of which way that you go, what's really important is that you you stay true to yourself. And if this is a, a challenge that your organization is really up to taking and and grabbing the bull by the horns per se, then I think that's the that's the best directive and that's the best advice that I, I can provide to anybody listening to this. One organization that doesn't seem to be grabbing the bull by the horns and doing that deep work to make this part of the fabric of the organization, I think it's fair to say, is the Edmonton police. Uh, We can't, of course, talk about this without talking about the police. They've been in the news all week. Uh, Council met with the police chief on Wednesday at at City Hall, and uh, they talked about the movement that's gone on, and they questioned uh, the chief and the police about some of the work that they're doing. There was some really interesting comments made in the last couple of days about that. So one of the things that Chief Dale McPhee said is, quote, now due to an event that happened and sparked in Minneapolis thousands of miles away, mm-hmm. we have members of the public screaming at us and telling us how much they hate us, mm-hmm. end quote. And I've, I've heard lots of discussion this week about you know, the police almost seeing themselves as victims in this whole scenario. Mm. And mm. then just before we got on uh, to record uh, on Thursday night here, there's an article that went up that talked about the uh, the police budget. And of course, council this week decided that they would ask for um, budget adjustments for the fall. They might reduce the police budget a certain amount in 2021, not as much as the Black Lives Matter Edmonton group has been calling for, but, but still mm. something. Mm. And the chief basically said that you know, we've hired diversity aggressively in the last few years, but it's last in, first out, meaning that if they reduce the budget, mm. they would essentially fire all of the underrepresented <laughs> groups, which is, you know, it's just so defensive and, and almost a bit of a threat. It doesn't seem like the police to me are, you know, taking a moment to say, no, there are real issues here that we need to address. I'm curious for your, your take on all of that. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a little bit more removed from that, I, I would say. And now I haven't kind of read into the records of the conversation or the transcript or anything, but there is a silver lining that we do have to consider regardless of what decision that we do take moving forward. And maybe I'll just kind of relate it to something that, you know, my, my, my significant other, you know, she had a family member say to her, um, you know, so she was lucky where she moved into the, the big city um, when she was a little bit of a younger age uh, compared to maybe some of her other siblings and, you know, kind of knowing what happens in, in the, you know, states of Texas and, and whatnot, right? I mean, that's almost like the the breeding ground of, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of these practices and everything, right? And there was something that her, her sibling said to her, and it was along the lines of, you know, we never got exposed to the big city, just like you did. We didn't have the same chance to be educated the same way or be exposed to diversity the same way that you did. So the fact that you're coming out and you're calling us out for things that we've done in the past and not considering some of these things, it's pretty hurtful. So again, I, I, I take that comment and I just sit with it and I, I, I try to just dissect it and really just 
get to the root of maybe what she's trying to communicate here, what this person is trying to communicate here. I mean, that can be a real material factor of why somebody has practice of behavior for so long. And if our first reaction is just really knee jerk and to completely write that off and be like, you know, you don't understand what I'm saying. You know, I'm not trying to attack you. Like, why are you even saying that? This has nothing to do with, you know, where I moved or when I moved. And I mean, not to say that that was her, her reaction, but, you know, kind of the, 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 the challenge that I'm finding here is that people are telling us what the barriers to entry that they are facing when trying to address this issue within their organization or within themselves as individuals. It seems that our first knee-jerk reaction is to almost write off what they're saying because we're kind of in this place of not actively listening, just waiting to push forward our agenda. Don't get me right. wrong, it's, it's the most important agenda at this, you know, at this moment in time, and I'm, I'm completely for it. But if we're just trying to force our way through to the finish line, it, it, it's just not going to work. If we're really critically sitting and, and understanding what people are saying and kind of going back to this police chief's comment, then we can start to hypothesize and then we can start to problem solve from there because we're now making these individuals feel like their points are being heard, right? So it takes a lot of humility. It takes a lot of self-awareness. It takes a lot of having the ability to sit and listen to maybe painful comments, but I think that's kind of at the crux of turning the wheel and really accelerating this so that we can move at the pace that we want to move. Um, again, I, I don't mean to divest from the comment that the police chief made, but that's kind of where my mind goes. Like you're saying, we got to listen to what he's saying and really hear out the police as well as the people who say the police have victimized them. Is that what I'm hearing? Well, I think I'm saying that like our first reaction shouldn't be kind of just like reactive to push back, right? Yeah. And because that's going to put people off. That's going to make this into, uh, uh, you know, we're just kind of butting heads, right? Um, so so yes, very much, you know, yes, we have to listen to, to what, what is being said. But, you know, we, we then have to just critically think and, and not have that kind of initial knee-jerk reaction. Because yeah, like if, if let's say you are a good standing cop and you've done your job for, for 20 years and, you know, I, I saw this one video of this one cop, he was saying that, you know, imagine if uh, you, you had a neighbor and this neighbor came over to your house and, you know, she, she, didn't, she wasn't getting paid until the next week and she was running out of milk to feed her kids uh, cereal for, for breakfast in the morning. And she asked you for, you know, some of your milk so that she could feed her kids is are you going to take out your phone and be like, okay, I'll give you this bottle of milk if I'm able to post this on social media and talk about the good deeds that I'm doing, <laughs> right? right? That, that would be embarrassing. That would be, that would be not a good feeling for that person who's in a vulnerable situation, right? I mean, police officers are dealing with people's worst days every single day. And this isn't to excuse the action of the, the, the people who are, are doing you know, very aggressive behavior. Right. Uh, I, I don't want people misinterpreting this, but, you know, police officers are, are experiencing people's worst days every single day. Sometimes they're having three or four multiple interactions every single day. And a lot of these things can't be documented, A, for privacy reasons, B, for, I mean, it's embarrassing for people. If we're just going to write off everything that they're telling us and not 
equip that within our game plan moving forward, then we're, we're going to turn off the good cops too, right. because they're going to be like, well, I've been doing this for X amount of years and you know, I'm not going to come out and say all the good things that I've been doing because this is what I've been sworn in to, to do for the community. So it, it's, such a, it's such a contentious topic, I know. And again, I will just say that I, I don't, I'm not excusing the behaviors of, of, of police officers or I'm not saying that you know, we, we can't show emotion in this because it is a very sensitive topic for, for people. Right. But I think the opportunity that we have here is to equip people with leadership skills that can really scale if people feel empowered to to do so. So I want to take a moment and maybe lightly push back on one of the things you mentioned there. Part of what you were talking about is meeting people where they are and hearing them out and mm-hmm. using that as a path to move forward. In the case of the Edmonton police, even as recently as this week, they were defending the officer who had a knee on uh, someone who they were purporting to arrest uh, in the same sort of triggering way that many dealing with the George Floyd scenario will have said, that's not okay. And they came out in support of that. At what point do we stop meeting the police where they are? In, In the power structure, the police have all the power here. And for years... For decades, for hundreds of years, we've had this community, in this case, the black community saying, we've been marginalized, we've been abused, and these power structures silence our voices. I don't know if asking them to meet the power structure where they are and listen to the powerful voices is the right answer here. I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Well, I guess, I don't know if I can answer that because... I'm I'm definitely not condoning them pushing back and saying that that behavior is okay. Uh, I mean, but so I mean, what what is the what is the alternative here? Is it that we we continue to shame people into action versus being strategic to be like, all right, you know, there's probably a chance that if we have a conversation about this, that we will draw to the conclusion that that behavior is not okay, and if we actively use our communication skills and our listening skills to point this out and make it very articulate and clear to the folks who are maybe condoning this type of behavior, then I see that as a more critical path to, to success. I mean, I, I've been just seeing some videos online where like, you know, people are uh, standing on the front line and just like yelling right in front of police officers' faces and stuff, right? So yeah, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know exactly, uh, to be honest, Troy. And I think just what's worked for me, and again, this could be because I've come from you know a more privileged position than than some, which I hopefully acknowledge at the at the start. You know, I think what's worked for me is being willing to just listen and using that as a means to then equip my own message and communicate back to the person that okay, what you said is not okay, and this is why. The the thing that I'm I'm getting fearful of is. As soon as there's a hint of, let's say, pushback, for example, we are just kind of we're, we're kind of switching into this like fight versus flight mode, right? Where it's it's very it's very instinctual um, to to human behavior, and I think that's why we're at the standstill that we are, is because it's a very very contentious conversation. Uh, it, it's it's a very difficult conversation to have. So yeah, I I don't know if I address that at all or um, with with any 
useful points there. <laughs> so I wonder if we can address it sort of by moving on to the next logical point where there's a call for um, Edmonton to reduce EPS funding um, anywhere from incremental to defunding the police. It's a spectrum. Mm-hmm. There's two sort of mechanisms by which we can solve this problem, recognizing that we have one. One is the EPS could internally start to do what you mentioned off the top of the show, look hard at their organization, analyze their structures, figure out how they can make meaningful, lasting change within the organization. Or in this case, daddy government, uh, city council could say, we are impacting change in the form of budgetary reductions that may have its own implications. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, recognizing that there may be a third option that you're welcome to throw out there, I wonder which option you favor. I'm always in support for some form of personal development, self-development, you know, community development, taking resources and investing them into the community if there's any means possible. So I think from a surface level, and again, I, I, I'm unfortunately not a policymaker, uh, and I, I don't understand the, the nitty gritty of this, I, I would be in favor of unloading capital from the police and reinvesting it into, uh, you know, uh, marginalized groups or, or underprivileged uh, communities and stuff. But I mean, we, like you said, with, uh, or maybe Max said it with one of the earlier points, we, we should really understand what the repercussions of that is. If a repercussion is that we don't see as much diversity within the police force, then are we just taking a, a Band-Aid off of one problem and, you know, putting it onto another you know, it's, 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 it's a really, really tough position to be in. And, you know, to be honest, I, I wouldn't want to be in the, in the position of a, of a government official at, at this time, because there, there is, there's going to be pain, whichever way there, there's going to be hurt, whichever way, the more that we un- unravel this black box and we see how much has been hidden from us for so long you know, there's going to be traumatic experiences that people have and that stay with them for a very long time because that's the only way that change can happen. So is our, are we taking the red pill or the blue pill? I love that movie. <laughs> <laughs> so we're getting close to wrap up. There's one last point we have to touch on. We have to talk about some of your irredeemably bad ideas that you support. And one of those is you sit on the board of Prairie Sky Gondola. (laughs) Just so you know, sorry if you haven't listened before, Troy and I are both on the show, not fans of the idea. I think it's very (laughs) sad. Yeah. Can I ask why? Why not? That's a whole other episode. (laughs) (laughs) We will say, given our positions of hosts of the show, what, what prompted you to support what did prompted you to support so much that you sit on the board of Prairie Sky Gondola? Do you really think the gondola can work in Edmonton? So Peter Thiel asks a famous question when he goes to invest in a company. And he asks, what's something that you believe in that very few people will believe in or will agree with you on? And that's almost the thesis that he uses for the investment decisions that him and his firm take. And, you know, if we think of some of the most radical ideas that are now being utilized by everyday people, you know, i.e. the Airbnbs, the Ubers of the world, it was a very radical idea in 
what was it, 2012, to get in somebody's car and ask them to drive you somewhere. It was a very radical idea for you to stay in somebody's basement versus staying in a quote-unquote safer hotel. It was a very radical idea for you to put your financial information on the internet. But what a lot of these entities have proven is that some of the most radical ideas are actually some of the most game-changing and behavioral-changing ideas if implemented correctly. And I even kind of think back to my experience with the Sea Tribe Festival. And whenever I would talk to potential partners or people who I'd want to get involved in, you know, my my first, you know, they'd ask, hey, like, so what's the Sea Tribe Festival? And I say, you know, it's something, it's a platform that celebrates diversity and helps innovative and creative people achieve their dreams. And some of their first reactions was diversity. Well, I mean, we're already diverse. Like, why do we, you know, why do we have to place emphasis on this? Why do we have to have a festival around this? You know, not knowing that we were aligning with the trend that is in everybody's conversation and boardroom and office today, right? So I'm not saying that Prairie Sky is the next radical game-changing idea, but hopefully I draw a correlation to say that, you know, some of the most wacky and things that maybe we're not used to and that kind of challenge our, our inner beliefs and what we think things should be like, those often or can be the most successful. So, so reading between the lines, you support it because it is an irredeemably bad idea. <laughs> Just getting you in trouble with the board. <laughs> bad and radical could be, uh, you know, it could be a fine line uh, with, with both. But no, I think I, I see the business case with it. Do you think it could be an effective way to move Edmontonians around? Because it's one of the reasons I think Troy and I both don't like the ideas. We already have you know, a transit system that is supposed to do that. And we could make some different investments there and we would seem have a more efficient way to move people across the river. And I, I'm not sure I buy the, the tourism angle either, but you you do, it sounds like. So, I mean, before Uber was around, people were saying, we already had transit systems. We already had cabs and stuff, right? I, I think that with the with the gondola, you know, one, one of the, the challenges that you know, we're, we're facing right now as a city is, you know, keeping people within the core, right? You know, we, we have so much urban sprawl that, you know, as soon as let's say the hockey game finishes or, um, you know, different activities that we'll have in the city and stuff. I mean, people just abandon and just go home, right? I'm not saying that the gondola is a, is a end all be all for, for solving that. But if you have something that doesn't harm the environment, it can move, the same amount of traffic as I think it's about, I don't know if it's 50 or 60 buses in an hour, uh, you know, a gondola going back and forth can move the same amount of traffic or something like from, from just kind of like looking at the numbers, it, it, it makes sense. And again, I'm not saying that it's the thing that's going to kind of solve all these challenges that we face as a downtown core, but I think it could be part of the solution. Right. All right. Well, thank you for being our unwitting victim of the Troy and Mac hates gondola hour. Um, <laughs> Thanks for the surprise. <laughs> I think that's all we're going to have time to talk about today. We've gone a little bit over time, but I think it's an important topic. So I'm okay doing that. Absolutely. Um, it's wrap up. We're going to give you a section just to say anything you want to push at the audience shove it now anything you want to plug sounds good yeah you can uh, feel free to find me on 
on Instagram, primarily that's where I'm, I'm most active. I do a little bit on Twitter, but not as much. Uh, but at Instagram, I'm uh, Sar S A H R S Junior Junior spelt out. And on uh, you can also find us at our, our Instagram uh, C Tribe pages at uh, C Tribe Fashion and uh, C Tribe Festival. So yeah, I appreciate the the opportunity to be on the show, guys, and, and thanks again for the uh, the very uh, challenging questions for sure. I I, I really felt. Uh, you guys pushed the needle and, and, and challenging me today. So I appreciate that. Well, thank you for being open and having that that conversation with us. I think it's an important one for us to have and for people to hear. So I appreciate you taking the time. Just quickly on Sea Tribe, any plans for this year given COVID? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, right now we are planning, uh, we're, we're experimenting with a couple uh, virtual events uh, that we're, we're putting together. And, um, you know, we're, we're going to see how they go and what the reception is like and whether we think that we can build it into a full-fledged festival if that's what kind of has to happen in, in November. But, uh, you know, we're going to still find a way to, to stay active this year and, uh, you know, uh, contribute to our community and provide a platform for them to share their latest happenings and, and connect and collaborate and provide collisions and stuff. But uh, right now, we're, we're definitely in the experimentation phase given that, you know, our festival months don't really kick in until about uh, about august and stuff when we really start uh putting our our rubber our rubber to the ground and stuff so so yeah that's uh, that's kind of where we're at right now through the magic of editing we're also saying this later so without any transition here's another ad with pod power atb is making it possible for us to amplify the voices of albertans and alberta podcasters This episode, we're giving a pod power shout out to A Tale of Two Weeklies, which is a documentary podcast series that digs into the rise and fall of Edmonton's C Magazine and View Weekly, two alt-weeklies engaged in a newspaper war that neither survived. You can find A Tale of Two Weeklies wherever pods are cast or visit taleoftwoweeklies.com. Until next time, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. I'm Sar. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally.